Well, good morning, everyone. Great to be with all of you this morning. Um, for those of you that were not here last week, uh, you may have missed uh, this, or if you haven't been on the website, uh, last week we got to announce finally kind of the, uh, the reality that our move into our new space, uh, we now have a hard date that we can count on. So December 10th will be our first weekend in the new space. Uh, which we're incredibly excited about, uh, mostly because from a functionality standpoint, it's going to affect some really, really cool things. Uh, I stand in that lobby uh, usually before the 902 starts or the 1117 starts, and I see that little line for the kids' ministry with parents with their toddlers in tow and the panic on their face looking and going, I don't think I'm going to make it for the check-in, and then they, you know, waiting for that room-closed sign to come up, and then the, the hard moment of, what do, I, what do I do? And um, in the new space, to be able to know that we can avoid that entire hard experience is a super exciting reality for me. Uh, not to mention the fact that, again, uh, we have some people sitting out in the lobby. Thank you guys so much. Sorry you can't be in here, uh, because it, it's just, uh, it's, it's tight. So, very, very excited about that, and, and a lot to be excited about uh, as we move into that new space. But there's also, in that move, some realities that we ought to be very, very aware of, especially in the cult cultural context in which we're in, right? So first of all, we are going to be moving from relative obscurity from a geographical standpoint to visibility. I mean, I think three and a half cars pass per day by our little space here that's hidden behind a bunch of trees right next to some zebras and a state park. So I mean, even Google Maps doesn't quite know how to find us here, right? So if you want to find Mosaic Church, uh, it is an effort to find us. And then even when you do, you're like, oh, you're behind the trees. Uh, now we're going to suddenly end up uh, on a road that 50,000 cars a day pass by. And there's going to be a certain amount of just uh, reality in our geographical visibility, which will mean that whatever our reputation is as a church, we don't have the luxury of that reputation being hidden, okay? So you go, what, what do you mean by that? Well, if, you, if you're hidden, then whatever your reputation may be, it, it, people may or may not know about it. And so if you have a great reputation, that's a bummer. But if you have a reputation that doesn't do a lot of great things for the gospel or for the reality of the kingdom of God, then at least it's somewhat hidden, right? We won't have that luxury anymore. Let alone that, in our cultural context, there is this ideology that says that when something is growing fast and getting bigger and, and moving in the, in the direction uh, of larger and larger, then it must be successful. Therefore, it must be awesome. Therefore, we ought to pay attention to whatever that organization or thing is. And we are moving into a larger space as a larger church. And so by definition, our cultural context will assume things about us that may or may not be true. I'm not saying that's right. I'm not saying it's right in our culture that success is measured by size and influence and scope. I'm just saying it's true. It's how our culture functions, right or wrong. So what that means for us is that our reputation is going to have a visibility that it has never had before. And with that should come a certain amount of righteous fear, right? Because we are called to have a reputation that brings honor to God and makes the gospel beautiful. And so 
our responsibility to do that has exponentially increased with this next move because we are so much more visible. And, and so not that we shouldn't have been doing it here, but with much opportunity now comes much responsibility. So what we really want to do is we want to make sure that as we move into the new space that we are taking seriously as a collective, as a body, what we are responsible for as we move in, both as individuals who follow Jesus as well as a collective. Because we will be very tempted moving into this new space and having all sorts of new things happen and a new flurry of activities just to become another big church. Right, Because you could, you could spend yourself being busy, being big church for all day long. There's so much happening in big church. There's so much we can do. And so uh, we do not, I, I, I know I do not, and I'm sure none of you want to, just simply become a big cool church in town. We want to be much more than that. What do we want to be? Okay, L- listen to this. This is um, the letter that Peter wrote, uh, his first letter to the church. <clears throat> and listen, listen to how he describes us as Christ followers. But you, verse 9 of chapter 2 of 1 Peter, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, listen to this now, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into the marvelous light. See, that's who we want to be. We want to be a collective of people, the body of Christ, as individuals and as an organized collective, displaying the excellencies of God's redemptive story and of his wonder and glory to our local and global community. We want to be a space of life for our local community, of light for our local community, of redemption, not of judgment and insanity, or just as terribly, just another organization doing all sorts of successful stuff to build themselves up. So, just so you know, that's not just gonna happen. We will more likely, if we don't take seriously this next move, end up just big church than we will a holy nation set apart for God to demonstrate the excellencies of God if we just walk into this and go, let's just just see how it plays out. No, no, if we want to be the people that we have worked diligently to become followers of Jesus who are redemptive for the sake of the people around us, we are going to have to work at that, continue to work at that, and perhaps harder now than ever. So what we're gonna do for the next few weeks, this week included, is we're gonna walk through what it means that we are stewards of God's story or managers of God's story. That it is not our story, it is his story, and we get to be the managers of that story. We're gonna talk stewardship. We're gonna talk stewardship for a couple of weeks because we are invited, we are called to steward the story of God, to steward our own stories, our relationships, our resources, and our circumstances in a manner worthy of the gospel so that the people that are around us will see the redemptive wonder of God in us and through us. That's what we're gonna do. And so we're gonna travel through that. So if we're gonna do that, we ought to start here. What on earth is stewardship? What it, biblically, what does it mean to steward? What does it mean to manage the story of God? It's not actually that complicated. Stewardship or the management of God's story or our story that is God's story is super, super simple. Here it is. This is what it is. It is managing God's blessings in God's way for God's glory. Now listen. 
Let me just define a few things because already there's a stuff that needs defining. It is managing God's blessings. What are God's blessings? What, when we say we're managing God's blessings, what are God's blessings? Some of you may say, well, you know, it's, it's the this, this stuff we get or, the, or the, the good parts of our life. Let me, just, let me just be clear. God's blessings is everything you ever have. Your breath, your life, your relationships, your circumstances, your resources. Now, you might go, hold on, hold on, there's some circumstances in my life and they aren't blessings. So they can't be God's blessings. Therefore, dear brothers, therefore, dear brothers, listen to this, okay? James chapter 2, verse 1. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that it is the testing or refining of your faith that develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work so that you might be mature and complete, not lacking anything. When the world throws hard stuff at us and God weaves those hard things into our refining, shaping, maturing, then even those things that are intended for our destruction become a part of our blessing, our finished work. So everything that is your life is part of the wonder of God's story being completed in you. Even if some of the terrible stuff is thrown at us by planet death. So, when I say we are stewarding all of God's blessings, that is your whole life. In God's way, that is the way God invites us and calls us and challenges us to steward it for God's glory, that is for his story, not ours, for for his redemption, not for our kingdom. That's what stewardship is. And it's important for us not just to know what stewardship is, but whether we have any biblical basis to determine that we are stewards of the story rather than just recipients of it. Because certainly God's blessings, he's given them to you. Aren't you just a recipient of God's blessings? You get them and they're yours. So why would I say to you, no, 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 they're not actually just yours. You are to manage them. Well, well, here's how we know, okay? First of all, the Bible is abundantly clear that everything in the world is God's. Okay, listen to Psalm 24.1 as an example. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, or everything in it. So what belongs to God? Everything belongs to God according to Scripture. So who is the owner of everything? God. Are we the owners of anything? No, according to Scripture, we're not. So we're not owners of anything. We possess nothing. God possesses all of it. So therefore, whatever we have is not actually ours. So if we're not owners, we must be something else, right? So what are we? In Genesis chapter 1, verse 24 through 28 and 2.15, and then in other places, here's what God communicates to us. Though I own everything... I have given you dominion over those things so that you might participate with me in the story of redemption and be managers of those things. We have authority over these things to be great managers of what is God's. We are given a tremendous amount from God, but it is not ours, it's his, and we manage it. And then on top of that, it's not just that we manage it any way we want. Okay, clarification, God owns everything and you manage it. Go manage it any way you want for your own well-being, for the kingdoms around you, whatever. No, 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 no. The scriptures are very clear that those who are managers of what God has given them ought to be faithful managers. So there is this clarity. God just doesn't want you to manage it. He wants you to manage it faithfully. 
And then the stories that Jesus told in Scripture, a number of them dealt with the reality of managing what God has given us. Our life, our circumstances, relationships, and resources. Managing that. And he talks a lot about what it looks like to be a faithful manager versus an unfaithful manager. And it is most often to do with who we're managing it for. Whether for ourselves and our well-being, or whether it is for the glory of God. So we come back to where we started, which is this. Stewardship is stewarding God's blessings in God's way for God's glory. That's what we are to do. So if we're going to steward this story we're about to enter into so that the story doesn't become a story about a big church, but it becomes a story about life-changing, world-changing humans that love Jesus, that are redemptive and care about their local and global community and are a people of God demonstrating the excellencies of God so that freedom and light is what people see, then we have to steward our lives well. Where do we get started? So the scriptures talks about stewardship very holistically about our whole life. But there is a particular area of stewardship that the scripture tends to lean into much more significantly and much more regularly than the other areas of stewardship. Not because this area is more important than the other areas or is the first of the other areas, but as we will find out, because this area is the most difficult and challenging for us to get started in, but also the simplest to engage in when we choose to. So, there are 2,350 verses throughout Scripture about this particular area. Of our stewardship holistically, relationships, resources, and circumstances. Do you think we have 2,350 verses about our relational stewardship? No. We have a couple, but not 2,350. How about our circumstances? No. How about our resources? Yes, you all don't want to say it, do you? And, and I get why. I get why. Because it's already begun now, hasn't it? You've already started going, oh, we're going to start stewardship and it's about money. Oh, yes, money. And we feel that way for two reasons. One, because honestly, especially in our cultural context, what is in my bank account or what is in my estate is really personal, right? You were so messing with that. We're tapping into some territory. And more importantly than the fact that it's pretty personal and you're pretty tied to it, and you really don't want to hear what you're supposed to do with it, you just want to be fine with whatever you're doing with it, uh, here's the other tragedy, right? That secretly, we all believe secretly that really, after all of this, what the church really wants is your money. And you go, no, no, you do. You do believe that. We all do. And you know why? Because unfortunately the church has done a terribly poor job as a general sense of making us feel that way. Because the church in general has forgotten themselves as well and fallen into the same trappings that we as individuals can with our resources, believing that our real security is in having enough resources. We don't get to keep the lights on unless we can convince all of you to make sure you give your resources to us so we can do what we need to do. And because that's been the way, the second we tap into resources, there is a fear that there's some campaign coming, and this is a strategic sermon to get you to release more of your funds to the church. (laughs) And that is deeply unfortunate, because that couldn't be further from God's deep and important heart to this topic as it relates to us as human beings. Part of the reason 
why God has 2,350 verses in all of scripture about our money is because he recognizes the way our souls work. And he recognizes that of all the things that we have, the thing we are most likely to believe we possess and most likely to believe that we produced is our resources. And so our resources are most likely to become the God that we serve outside of him because our resources feel very much like he does. They provide for us safety. They provide for us security. They provide for us the desires of our heart. The more resources you have, the more stuff you can get that you like. They provide for us the ability to, to care for others. They provide for us a future. See, money feels like a savior to us. And then when money is absent, it feels like death to us. So money feels very much like God is supposed to feel to us. And so he knows the likelihood of money being served as a God is very high for our souls. And he wants to keep us safe from that. Listen to this. Uh, In Matthew, Jesus is teaching. And uh, this is the Sermon on the Mount. So this is the first time that Jesus sat down with the crew, kind of a, a large gathering, and he essentially did a sermon starting with the Beatitudes on the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. He was kind of saying, I'm gonna bring to the table a vision of what the kingdom of God really is and how it functions, and you'll see how it stands in many ways opposed to the way that the kingdom of this world functions because the kingdom of God brings freedom, light, and life. The kingdom of this world brings bondage, struggle, darkness, confusion. And so it's unpredictable, it's random, it's crazy, and it's not helpful because it's planet death. Jesus is unpacking all of this, and in part of that sermon, here's what he says about our resources. Listen to this. Verse 19 of chapter 6 of the book of Matthew. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So God says, the reason I'm having you think bigger about this than storing up resources on planet earth is not so much because the resources come and go on planet earth and they don't in heaven. So it's better for you to have a bunch up there and we use this like, you know, store up a big storehouse up there so you'll be super happy and super rich in heaven. That's not what this is about at all. This is actually about God saying, wherever Your security lies, your treasure lies, your safety lies, that's where your heart will be. So what your heart is going to be bound to will depend on where you are storing up your security. Don't store it up in things that are temporal because it will be binding to you and destructive to you. Now look what he says. He actually expands on this two verses later. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. See, God just made money a God. Did you see that? He said, when when you are a human, the likelihood of you and I accidentally, unintentionally serving our resources as a God is extremely high. And God doesn't want that for you because when that happens, it produces in you a space where bondage and destruction and death become part of your life that you won't even know. As a matter of fact, God made this very clear early on in the biblical story because he realized the reason we get so caught up in thinking our money is ours is because we produce it. I mean, do you produce the resources you have? 
Now, one or two of you are like, no, they were handed to me. Well, lucky you, the rest of you, right? (laughs) Most of us work hard to produce our resources, right? And because we work hard, then it is easy for our brains and our souls to go, I worked hard for this using my strength and power and abilities to produce resources. See, God designed us to be able to produce resources, but then we forget ourselves. Listen to this. Deuteronomy, so we're going way back, first five books of the Bible, God is communicating to his people in Deuteronomy, and listen to what he says uh, in, in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 8. Listen to this. Deuteronomy 8, starting in verse 17. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. So beware that you think that the power that you have in the might of your hand has gotten you these resources. Yeah, but, but they did. Okay, fair enough. Let's look what he says. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. Oh. So it's not that God hands us our resources. Here, here, here. And you're like, oh my gosh, this came straight from God. It's so beautiful. No, God gives us power and, 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 and might to be able to go and produce things. That's part of God's privilege of us participating with him in the redemptive story. We are not simply bystanders, recipients of blessings from God to go, thank you so much, and then we die. We are actually invited to be participants in the redemptive story of God, and part of that is that we get to produce stuff. But our trouble is that when we produce things, we think because we produced them that they are either ours or we made them, but we didn't produce them because the very power that it took to produce them, our intelligence, our abilities, our people skills, our personalities, our history, the family we grew up in, the opportunities we have that we were born in America instead of being born in Indonesia or in the middle of Africa somewhere. All the things you and I have, they were handed to us by God's grace for us to produce resources, for those resources to be used for the expansion of the kingdom of God and redemption on this planet so that those who do not have those resources can receive provision from God through those who have those resources because all of them belong to God. See, so what he's saying is, look, man, if you get confused about what's produced and you think it's yours, trouble. Why is it trouble? Look, he says it here. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. So he's giving you these blessings because he's your dad and he wants you to participate in the awesome story of redemption. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. So here's what he's saying, right? Listen carefully. He's saying that when you and I find ourselves worshiping other gods because we are drawn to them because of the resources we have, what that's going to equate to in our spiritual journey and our freedom is actually death and bondage. I want you to catch what I'm about to say. Whatever you and I possess will possess us. Whatever you and I possess will possess us. If you possess your resources, they will possess you. If you possess your children, they will possess you. If you possess your spouse, they will possess you. If you possess Christ, then he will possess you. 
meaning that we are not capable as human beings of having something and not being tied to it with anxiety and craziness and, and beliefs that are wrong. That's why God says possess nothing. It's all mine. Manage it because managing it is a responsibility our human souls can handle. Possessing it is not a responsibility our human souls can handle because then we forget ourselves and end up worshiping the very things we possess, in which case we worship false gods, in which case we destroy the very reality of our freedom, which is to worship God and know him alone. Do you see what God's trying to do here? I don't want you bound and perishing spiritually. I want you to live in the freedom that I have created you for. And that freedom exists when you know me and possess me alone. And when you manage everything else for me on my behalf. So stewardship is a gift to us as much as an opportunity for us to participate in the story of God. We know we need to be stewards. We know we're called to it. We know we're made for it. And we know when we're not stewards and owners, we are not free. So the question then becomes, how on earth do we begin this stewardship journey? Well, it begins with our resources, and here's why. Because one, they're the most easily tied to our souls and possess us most quickly. And two, here's what's super cool about resources. They're neutral. They don't bite back. So managing your resources, being a steward of your resources that are not actually your resources but God's is actually relatively easy because they don't constantly change on you. Managing relationships is a nightmare because you might manage them super well, but they're human. They're not neutral. They do stuff and you're like, wait, wait, I'm trying here and you are constantly messing this up. And circumstances managing those are insane because you work them to try to make them be what they need to be and planet death just keeps throwing more stuff at you, right? So we're gonna talk about that down the road. But right now, managing your resources is awesome. You know why? Because it's just up to you. Money's neutral. It's not evil, it's not good, it's just money. And what you do with it is completely up to you. So managing your resources is relatively simple. Not easy, because they're tied to our soul, but simple. Where do we begin managing our resources? Now, I'm gonna bounce a rock over the surface of this lake real quick. I'm gonna just give you, of those 2,350 verses about managing our resources, I'm just gonna give you some principles born out of all those 2,350 verses. These principles, I do not have time to unpack in depth with all of you here, because then we'll be here for seven hours together and you will be super bored, okay? So I'm not gonna do that. But the joy is that every one of these principles, people have written a great deal about and studied scripture deeply about, and so you can actually learn all of these and you can further study all of these. All I want to show you today is that we, if we're going to steward our lives well, need to learn to steward our resources well. And if we're going to steward our resources well, these are some of the principles that we are going to have to engage in if we're not already engaged in them. Okay. So principle number one, if you're going to steward your resources well, you need a plan. What? You just need a plan. Well, uh, what do you, what do you mean? You can't just live with whatever comes in. I kind of roll for the month, pay as many bills as I can, and if there's leftovers, I go out for ice cream. You actually need a plan. And we have a word for the kind of plan that deals with resources. Are you ready? Buckle up. Take a deep breath. Budget. Budget. Now, seven hands just went up and said, it's not my personality. It's not kind of my thing. You know, I don't do the budget thing. It's all structured and stuff. So, so, so let me get this straight then. When our personalities don't lend themselves to budgets, that certainly overrides our calling to be good stewards of God's resources, right? Did you just say that out loud? Yes, I sure did. 
Because this is what we always do as human beings. We, we bring our, our little things to the table and God goes, you need to create a plan and a plan financially is a budget. You need a budget. Part of the reason why we're afraid of budgets, I'll just tell you, is this. Because if we have more resources than we need, then we're already afraid of budgets because it's going to restrict our fun. Or it's going to restrict out. We, we have enough. So we just kind of roll with it. There's always leftover. And then we give generally out of that. And it's great. If we have too little, then we're afraid because we're like, oh no, a budget's going to reveal how little I have and how much I'm spending on my credit card. And I don't want to really do that. because Budgets are scary because they're revealing. They're also scary because they feel restrictive. Budgets are not restrictive. Budgets are a gift of planning so that you move from being an owner of your resources to being a steward of your resources because they're not your resources, they're God's. So you're gonna have to have a plan. That's principle number one. And if you don't know how to do that, good news! We have lots of people that do and lots of books that do and they can help you. It's not difficult to do it, it's simple. It's just hard because you don't really want to and I don't really want to. Second principle that's born out of scripture is that out of the resources you have, you need to give. And I'm not talking about generosity. Generosity is a different category. We'll get to that. You need to give. This in the Bible is called tithing. It's out of the first fruits. It is an immediate decision you make whenever resources enter your world. You immediately take a portion of those resources and you divert them back to a story that is God's story. You put it back in. Here's why. God doesn't actually need those first fruits to keep his lights on, okay? He doesn't, doesn't need your money. Why doesn't he need your money? Because it's not your money. It's his money. And he can do with it as he sees fit. He, he can easily empower anyone or anything to create resources so we know that it's God's stuff. God doesn't need you to tithe. You need to tithe. Why? Same reason I tell my kids, I don't need you to honor me. I don't need you to honor me. I'm secure in of myself. And if my kids don't honor me, I don't feel, I don't feel like I'm a, a loser, right? But you need to honor me. Because if you don't honor me, what's happening to your soul is the damage, not mine. God doesn't need you to tithe. You need to tithe. I need to tithe. Because what happens to our soul when we tithe is a freedom that is extraordinary. Here's why. We just read in Deuteronomy that when we learn to believe that we produced our resources and therefore they are ours, then they become to us something we possess. And when we possess them, they possess us. And when they possess us, then we worship the wrong God. And when we do that, we do not experience freedom and life and light. We experience uh, what he calls perishing. We experience death. God does not want that for his children. He wants us to live freely. And to live freely, we need to constantly communicate to our souls that our safety, our security, our future is not found in our resources. And the way we do that is that any resources we get, the first thing we tell our soul is, remember this isn't yours, and remember your safety is not in this. So a portion goes back to God just to say, God, I will remind my soul. And when we don't tithe, I want you to hear this, okay? When we don't tithe, then we, then we unintentionally and accidentally communicate to our soul day in and day out, your safety is in your resources. Keep them as tight as you can because you will not survive without them. We communicate the wrong things to our soul and then we believe the wrong things. Now, tithing is a beautiful and wondrous adventure to go on and just so you know, that scripturally, it's not as simple as we used to think it is, where it's just like, take 10% up front and give it. Actually, the Old Testament has some things, but in the New Testament, there is this beautiful expansion of tithing that says it needs to be sacrificial, regular, 
and it needs to be a, a, a part of, uh, of your, your regularity, sacrificial, and it needs to be a part of your income that comes in. Here's the deal. Depending on where you're at financially will depend on what that looks like from a percentage standpoint. Sacrificial giving looks very different from a single parent trying to put food on the table than it does from someone that has seven figures in their bank account, right? One is not better than the other. It just looks different. And if you put a percentage on it, that percentage would be more than sacrificial for a potentially single parent and not even touching sacrifice for someone with a lot. And it can be vice versa as well. So it's not about percentages. It's about learning the adventure of going to God and saying, when it comes in, what do first fruits look like? When we tithe, we are doing two things. We are communicating safety to our souls, making sure we don't worship the wrong God, and we are participating in the grand story of God without control over the grand story of God. It's good for our control freaky little uh, uh, minds, right? You really wanna be in control, so do I, I get it. But the reality is it's good to say, God, here you go, do your story. Third, you need to save for emergencies. These are biblical principles, I'm telling you. Okay, save for emergencies. You go, really? I mean, save for emergencies, why would I do that? Well, here's why. Because we live on planet death. And planet death doesn't look at your beautiful little budget that you've budgeted without saving for emergencies and goes, oh, you're so, you're so wonderful and you love Jesus and you're giving your money away, so I'm not going to send you a transmission that's gonna break today. And I'm not gonna have your, your, your car go into disaster. I, the hurricane will not blow through your little city and blow your roof off. See, the world doesn't work that way. Planet death throws stuff at us constantly because it's in turmoil, and so you and I will constantly find ourselves with some emergencies. And if you haven't budgeted that into your plan, then every time an emergency happens, it will disrupt your ability to steward your plan well. So then you won't be a steward, you'll be a crisis-driven financial person. With emergency, I would have loved to do that, but I couldn't because there was another emergency. You need to budget for emergencies. You need to have saving for emergencies as part of your plan. You need to protect with insurance. These are biblical principles. Why would I protect with insurance? Here's why. Because on some regularity, those emergencies exceed your emergency savings account, right? When you're saving for emergencies in a savings account, it's usually a few hundred dollars or a few thousand dollars. It's not hundreds of thousands of dollars, okay? Because most of us don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars anyway. So here's the thing. On occasion, those emergencies get really big. You are in a car accident and you need to be flown to the hospital. Or a hurricane comes through and legit blows your roof off your house, right? Or your car is in an accident and the car is written off and you don't have $26,000 in your emergency fund to spend. We have this reality in our culture where for very little, of your total budget, you can pay into things that when the big emergencies happen, they don't sink you and destroy your entire budget. And it is wise for you and I to be making sure that we are protecting with insurance, health insurance, life insurance, auto insurance. These are things that are important. They're not just legalities, they're important to biblical principles. Then, after we have made a plan, given, saved, and protected with insurance, we ought to spend our money. What? Yeah, that it, it is to be spent, right? 
So part of managing money well is to spend it on the right things. And that starts with your expenses. There is a life God has provided for you and I through the resources he's given us. And it is a joy that part of your privilege of being a steward is that those provisions provide also for you and your, your life, your family, if you're married and have kids, for your world if you are living single. So here's the deal, right? We ought to look and have a plan on our expenses and spend our money on those expenses so that we get them covered. For those of you that go, I don't even make enough money to cover my expenses. How do I start saving and giving all that? Great question. Let's find someone that can help you do that because it's not nearly as complicated as you think it is. Then, after you spend on expenses, the things that need to be paid, the things that make your life happen, then biblically, your next responsibility is to eradicate debt. This is before you have fun money to go buy ice cream with. You eradicate debt. Now, there's different kinds of debt. You'll learn about this. There's, there's decent debt and bad debt. There's not great debt. Debt is always not a great idea. But the beautiful thing is when there are assets that you can't afford immediately, like most of us, a house, for example. Not too many of us can just go buy our houses cash, right? There is debt where an asset exceeds the debt you owe on it so that if ever there's a problem, you get rid of the asset, you can pay off all your debt and some that's okay debt. Not great, but okay. But debt where you owe more than the asset is due, very bad debt, right? I bought my car and it was worth 23000 when I drove it off the lot and I owe 22000 on it. Then I drove it off the lot, now it's worth 18000 So if you sell the car, you still owe $3,000. Not good debt, right? Your debt should always be below your asset. But whatever your debt is, you ought to be paying and eradicating that debt because being in a position where we owe other people stuff biblically is not the best idea. So just be working at eradicating your debt. Then, save for the future. Save for the future. Now, in, in our context, we call this retirement, right? right? But retirement has some connotations I don't love because in our culture, retirement means save for the future so that when you're around 60-ish, 65-ish, if you're a little late, 70 if you're really late, right? We've, we're pushing into the 50s now. Have enough money so you can play golf and pick up shells. <laughs> that is not actually retirement, right? We as Christ followers are not supposed to bail on this life around 65 and just go have some fun and travel the world. Nothing wrong with traveling some and playing some golf, but golf five days a week, seven hours a day is not a good idea. And here's why. Because we are stewards of our life until we take our last breath. We are stewards for God's glory until then. The trouble is if you don't save for the future, it's not about your comfort and convenience, but if you don't save for the future, then when the future comes, you can't steward God's resources real well because you'll be in crisis constantly. You should save for the future to be able to engage in being a great steward for the story of God. Then you should pay honest taxes. Now, for most of you, like, okay. Some of you are like, not paying taxes to this stupid president that we have right now. I'm sure people felt that way with the last one and the one before that and the one before that. And our temptation is always to come up with some reason why our government's in completely insane, which at times our government is completely insane, and go, I'm not paying taxes to them. Listen to me. We have not had a single president in the history of America that's as bad as Caesar. What? Caesar. In Rome, he was worse than all our presidents combined. And what did Jesus say to his followers? Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. We are responsible biblically to pay what is due 
for where we live to the Caesar that we have. And in our case, our Caesar is a democratic government system. And by the way, if ever you're super frustrated by the idiocy that goes on in our government with all of the corruption, also remember this, that the majority of your taxes and mine actually serve these kinds of things. You drive on some very nice roads to get here that are relatively safe. And if something goes wrong on those roads, you have an amazing medical system that can come and helicopter you wherever you need to go, drive you in an ambulance. And when you get to that hospital, they actually have medications and they actually have equipment and they actually have doctors. It's amazing. And there's actually a fire station within a certain amount of space to every one of your houses and mine. Oh, and we actually have a police force that isn't just a bunch of corrupted crazies, but they actually protect us and they actually serve us and they actually make sure we don't drive 5,000 miles an hour and kill people on the roads, right? And we actually have electricity every day, all day. Like what? Most countries don't have anything I just mentioned. We do. And when our little cell phone tower goes out for seven minutes and our internet's not working right, we're like, what's going on? (laughs) We have all that because we pay taxes. And you participate in sharing in this community when you do that. So render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, pay honest taxes. After you've done all that, guess what you get to do next? You get to enjoy what's left over. Yes, God wants you to enjoy some of your money. Now, the way that you enjoy it, when you really start discovering the wonder of God, the greatest joy you'll have is in generous giving. But it's not a requirement, it's a joy. See, the giving we talked about at the front end isn't generous giving. It's just keeping your soul safe and participating in the story of God. This is now leftovers and you're like, ooh, and you can enjoy some of it for yourself or you can give some of it or you can give all of it or enjoy it. That's the joy of it. You have leftovers because you've had a plan and then you can be generous with that, participate in God's story or enjoy that money in different ways. And then finally, before you enjoy all your money and give it all away, There is actually a principle in scripture in regular spaces that says leave an inheritance for your kids. Uh, Proverbs chapter 13 verse 22 says a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. Now you might go, oh man, how do I make a million dollars? It's not saying you have to leave a giant inheritance and make their lives so comfortable that they never have to work and they can just do whatever they want because that usually goes badly for the next generation anyway, right? All it means is work diligently stewarding the resources God has given you so that you don't leave your kids a financial mess, but you actually leave them something. Most of us in this cultural context are bound to leave our children a giant mess where their estates have to pay off all the debt that we've handed to them that now gets paid off by the estate. That they, Listen, we don't want to leave our kids a mess. We want to leave our kids something, just something. Because when we leave them something, here's what we say to the story of God. We managed, we stewarded the resources God has given us in a manner that didn't leave us leaving planet Earth with a bunch of debt. We managed it leaving something for the next generation. That is a biblical principle. That's gonna take work on all of our parts. And, And why do we do all of this? We do all of this because that's what makes us people that demonstrate the excellencies of God in the way we live. Because it demonstrates to the rest of the culture, we do not serve our money like a God. We manage God's money for his glory. And we are benefactors of some of that wonder and some of that awesome provision. But we manage it so that our money 
and then eventually our life is not something we possess that possesses us, but something that we steward because God possesses us. And when we do that, you know what we get in return? Freedom. Freedom. And you know what the world gets? Redemption. And you know what God gets? Glory. That's right. And then we are back where we began, right? We are not just recipients of God's blessings or God's grace. We are participants in God's blessings and God's grace by being stewards of God's blessings in God's way for God's glory. And when we learn to do it with our money, then it will be much easier to learn to do it with our lives. And when we learn to do it with our lives, we will not turn into a big church on Highway 50 doing big church stuff. We will turn into a people group that is a royal priesthood, a holy nation, set aside for God to possess so that he might make his excellencies known to the world through us who are the recipients of light having been called out of darkness so that the world might see light and be called out of darkness so that they might be free and experience the wonders of God. Isn't that who you want to be? That's who I want to be. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for the opportunity that lies ahead of us in this new move into this new space. But we also stand with a bit of concern that we're going to get caught up in the realities of big stuff and then we're going to forget ourselves. So we're asking you to prepare us well over the next few weeks and then ongoingly into the next year so that we don't become just another big church, but we become a movement, a people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood set apart to be possessed by you so that we are possessed by nothing but you and then stewarding our lives in a manner that demonstrates your redemption and brings you, you glory. God, we want to be stewards of your blessings in your ways for your glory. Help us to do that well and help us to start by being diligent and being honest with ourselves about our money and if we're not managing our money well because we don't have a plan, then help us to start doing the work to find the right people or read the right books to get a plan. And then as we have that plan and we manage that well, help us to have that spill over into our relationships and our, and our circumstances so that we manage our lives in a manner that brings you glory. God, we don't want to be a people that stands over our local community or over the globe in judgment or in arrogance or in self-righteousness. We want to be a people that serves our local community and our globe with humility and love and our resources, our relationships, our circumstances so that they might know your love, your redemption, your beauty. Make it so for us, God. These are the people we want to be both as a collective and as individuals. Teach us. We are listening. We are ready to learn. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.